I'm too much or, you know, I'm too old, too young, too heavy, you know, not talented enough, not whatever it is. Really what it boils down to is this belief that I somehow am not enough. That is the universal limiting belief that we all carry around. You're listening to Creatives Making Money, the podcast for creatives who are on a mission to do the work they feel most called to do and make some money while they do it. This is a show for the makers, the dreamers, the doers, the creators, the artists, the crazy ones, and the ones who are determined to consciously build the life and career of their dreams. Here, we don't just believe in getting your dream job, we believe in creating it. So what does creative success even look like? How do we live a fully expressed, abundant AF life? That's precisely what we're here to find out. My mission with Creatives Making Money is to conduct 100 interviews with successful creatives and those who love and support them about money, career, and the process of making and doing what they most love, including all of the ups, downs, and in-betweens. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, writer, storyteller, filmmaker, serial entrepreneur, and shameless creator. No matter where you are in your creative and financial journey, I'm here to help you create like you mean it. Hello and welcome to Creatives Making Money. This is a very special episode because I have as a guest today, one of my absolute favorite people on the planet Earth. (laughs) Her name is Kelly Ruda and Kelly is a seasoned psychotherapist turned inner game mastery mentor. Kelly works with visionary women who have the audacity to believe that they can disrupt the status quo and heal the world. Sound familiar or like anyone you know? (laughs) Kelly's soul truly comes alive when she gets to jam about all things transformation, which we're totally going to do today with other high vibe women from the stage, radio, and podcasts. And when she isn't flying high by helping people tap into the immense power of their minds, which I cannot wait to get into with her, Kelly can be found on her porch with a book in her hand or on the beach with her toes in the sand. I know the beach is her happy place. We've talked about this many times. So without further ado, welcome, Kelly. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I, get, I feel like I'm just getting to have a hangout session with one of my favorite people. So this is, this is awesome. Thank yeah. you. I'm so grateful and I'm, and I'm excited about this. And, I, and another reason is I really do believe that the conversations, I, the conversations we get to have on podcasts that are with people that we already have a certain comfort level with and like we know them really well that we just, and especially with you, like I know we're just going to go in. Yeah. We're going to go in. We're going in deep, girl. Buckle yeah. your seatbelt. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, I actually worked with Kelly myself um, last year, about a year ago. And yep. it was Kelly who supported me through the decision to move back to Los Angeles and kind of re pursue my screenwriting career in a, in a new way, um, in addition to many other things that I was holding myself back with. So, you know, she is she is the, a true light worker and magic magic everything. Oh, uh, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you so much, love. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. There's no hiding with Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> There's nowhere to hide, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing. No, it's great. It's one of your, it's part of your superpowers. Yeah. Part of your superpowers. So one of the big reasons that I invited you on um, was to really get into like those very particular challenges that that creative space around like, they don't believe in themselves. They don't believe they're good enough. They don't think their work is good enough. They might have something that's like a faint dream that they want to accomplish. And I think this happens for entrepreneurs just as much as it happens for someone who identifies as an artist or healer. Yeah. Where they have work on their heart or vision. And there's just, there's these missing pieces. There's this gap between like their, the self-belief that they can achieve it or that it's available to them or all of those things. And so, you know, I just wanted to us to have like a a conversation about that and hopefully give listeners something that they could really take and walk away with where they feel like, okay, I have some steps forward. Um, You know, as a creative, I kind of know what path to start walking to really make strides in my career as a creative professional. Beautiful. Let's go there, my friend. Yeah. So the first question I have is, how do you, how does someone overcome the belief that like they're not good enough or that their work isn't good enough? <laughs> That's a million dollar, wait, how long is this podcast? How many 
No, it's a really good question. The reason I'm laughing at it is because that's the billion dollar question, mm -hmm. right? Because once you really rewire and reprogram that belief, then the truth is that just about anything is possible. It really reconnects you to your true limitless nature. And while we have maybe some physical limitations or we have limitations based on, you know, our, our experience here on earth in terms of creativity and, uh, and making money and opportunities and experiences and expansion, those things are really honestly quite limitless. Um, so the key for, first things first, I want anybody who's listening to feel very validated in this because I've been doing this for 23 years, working with people's minds and their emotions and all the other things that go with it. And I've not met a person yet who has not struggled with what I sort of term the universal limiting belief, which is when you peel back the onion of I'm too much or, you know, I'm too old, too young, too heavy, you know, not talented enough, not whatever it is. Really what it boils down to is this belief that I somehow am not enough. That is the universal limiting belief that we all carry around, you know, some with to a greater degree than others. But I've not yet met a person who didn't struggle with some nagging sense of inadequacy and you know, then you can pile the layers on there based on life experience and if you've had any trauma or dysfunction, uh, loss, any struggles with depression, anxiety, your weight, I mean, you name it, right? That It just adds the layers to, I am not blank enough. And we just begin to fill in the blank with so many things. But I want people to feel validated and understand that you are a member of a very large club of people who have struggled with uh, believing that something about them is so fatally flawed that you do not have the right or the ability to tap into what is meant to be yours, which is immense abundance. And unless you heal that in some way, then the abundance that is there for you just exists as potential and you're not able to actualize it. And for, I find for creative people, especially that is a frustration that has the potential to derail everything you do, everything, every day, day in and day out, whether it's, you know, my author clients who've been like, F it, I'm not writing. I'm done. I'm going to work, you know, as a greeter at Walmart. I can't do this anymore, you know, or my other artists, clients who are painting, making music, uh, sculpture, other things like that, or even you with screenwriting and, you know, that kind of creativity, that if you don't shift that belief, you really are at risk for walking away from what your birthright is. Mm. <laughs> it's just so good. It's so true, though. It's so true. So I want to get into sh how we shift those beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, but before we go there, I'm curious to hear from you, you know, in your experience and obviously without betraying the confidentiality of your work mm -hmm. with your clients, what do you think, what causes that? Like what creates our, this kind of universal limiting belief that we aren't enough? I would say two things. So number one would be, um, like cultural and familial messaging, so there are very few cultures now and very few countries where, especially for women, where you're not going to be exposed to consistent messaging around and marketing around not being enough, whether it's buy this product because you'll lose weight and when you lose weight, you're finally enough or buy this product because it'll make you look younger and because you're aging, you're not enough or whatever, you get the point. And familial meaning just it passed down from generation to generation, things that are in our families that either consciously or unconsciously are handed down in, in the messaging. And a lot of it's fear-based and a lot of it comes from good intentions, you know, where our parents just wanted to do the best that they could and they were so fearful of us not doing well or being well or making it 
that they kind of unknowingly passed down a, a bunch of nonsense that wasn't terribly helpful, but that was also passed to them. Now, the thing is that in this day and age, fortunately, in to much greater degrees than ever before in history, we have the ability to understand this and um, rectify this problem from all different avenues, creative avenues, spiritual avenues, psychological avenues, intellectual avenues. There's all ways to come up with solutions and even combine them. They're not in competition with each other. Um, so, so that's one thing. The second thing is uh, I, I'm hard pressed to come up with more than one handful, one, you know, five fingers of people that I know who have not been exposed to a significant trauma. And when you add uh, being exposed to a traumatic experience or a traumatic uh, series of experiences, it really makes it difficult for both biological and mental and emotional reasons to find a way to rise above limiting beliefs because trauma not only programs in new limiting beliefs, fear-based, scarcity-based beliefs, but it also changes the way your brain works and not for the better. It helped you survive it for sure, but in the long run, you carry trauma with you forever unless you do something about it to help your brain and to help your heart and your mind. And so those are really the two ways that I, I think that speak to the question that you're asking here. And while not everybody has been exposed to trauma, and it's not just about PTSD, you know, for war veterans, it's talking about, uh, you know, I'm talking about being exposed to all kinds of abuse, all kinds of neglect, uh, violence, um, even things that are accidental, a traumatic car accident or um, an illness or a death. So there's lots of ways that you can be traumatized. And I think, unfortunately, too many people don't even know that they've experienced trauma because they go, oh, no, 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 I didn't see somebody get shot and, you know, I wasn't raped or whatever. And those are just two of the many, many ways that you can be exposed to trauma and that your brain can literally change the way it functions. What do you think are some like sneaky traumas that somebody would write off and say, oh, well, like I shouldn't, I shouldn't have these feelings yes. based on my experience or based on what I've been through. Like I've been privileged or I've had X, Y, Z things in my favor. Like, um, you know, I was having this conversation earlier about like, you know, trauma's trauma. You know, you can't really rank, you can't rank pain. You can't be like, because pain is pain, trauma's trauma to some extent. So what do you think are some of like the things that, that you would consider trauma from a psychological perspective yeah. that most people probably would overlook? Yeah. So really uh, emotional abuse and growing up with a parent who has mental illness of some sort. And I think a lot of people overlook this because when they think of trauma, they think uh, there has to be some sort of physical violence associated with it or sexual violence associated with it, or that you have to witness something violent. And that is absolutely untrue. So you can have a parent who's say a narcissist or has a like borderline personality disorder or something who is incredibly emotionally abusive, but you've got, you, you can live in a multi-million dollar house, have food on the table, be well-educated, have beautiful things and live in a safe neighborhood and come out just as traumatized as somebody who had a totally different experience. And I've seen this time and time and time again. And I'm a really good example, just personally. I grew up in a great neighborhood. I grew up with money. I grew up being well-educated. My parents were not divorced. I wasn't beaten. Um, and I have significant trauma from things that went on behind closed doors with my family and the way they interacted and just generational patterns that got passed down uh, that were passed to me. And because I am like an incredibly empathic and sensitive person, those things really traumatized me, really traumatized me. And my sisters don't feel the same way. They didn't have the same experience of feeling deeply traumatized by what went on. 
So, you know, that's one way. And another way is um, if you grow up with a parent who has depression, who struggles with anxiety, who is maybe drinking too much or, you know, those kinds of things. Yes, while they're not beating you and locking you in a closet, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not being traumatized by those things. You cannot grow up with a parent who's got some sort of, um, a, say, a diagnosable condition and not come out a different person because of it. And some people are actually traumatized by it. And so I think it's just really easy to write off, though, because the average Joe person thinks that trauma has to be related to violence. And it just does not. Um, you, based on your personality and what you were exposed to and a lot of other factors, really, uh, you can be traumatized by lots of things and nobody ever has to lay a finger on you. I want to talk about <clears throat> developing boundaries with your parents. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, that's why. I don't know. It just came to me. So we're due to talk about it. Um, I love it. This is something that's been coming up, that's come up a lot lately, like in my, in my field, I'll say, like with clients okay. of mine or friends of mine or other creatives who I know maybe aren't pursuing what they really want to pursue. And it's because they wouldn't have their family support or because their families believe like, well, that's ridiculous or you shouldn't do that. And in some okay. cases, there's a lot, there's a lot of that. Well, they grew up with a parent who, who was anxious and, and st still treats them that way. So Yes. You know, if I'm worried about you as your parent, as an example, and I'm like constantly checking in with you because I'm worried or constantly like showing you my anxiousness and like asking you to make decisions that will make me feel okay, I think it, it can yes. be even harder for someone to decide like, well, I want to step into the lifestyle I want instead of worry about caretaking my family's feelings or my parents' feelings or my whatever. Um, and that's something that I see a lot. So for someone who is in a situation like that, or maybe identifies with having a parent who, or a family member who, where you feel like the expectation is that you should live your life <laughs> to make them feel a particular way. Like, how do you yes. create that boundary? Not just like in communication, but energetically to be able to really create space for the work you need to do. So what I will tell you is this is something that I own that I am really, really good at. And I am really, really good at it because I had to be really good at it. It was a survival skill that, and I mean in a literal way that, that because I was suicidal twice, so 18 and 19. <clears throat> and it, a lot of it had to do with what was going on with my parents. And uh, I had to make a really conscious decision that I was not willing to sacrifice myself in order to make them happy. And that was a hard decision, but a not so hard decision because I knew that I was a perpetual disappointment in a lot of ways um, because I was not what my, you know, mom wanted me to be and do. And same, same thing with my dad, even though uh, now, I, mean, I just, my mom just passed, but now my dad has made it very clear to me that he doesn't feel that way. But back in the day, you know, at 19 or 20, when I was trying to figure things out and realizing I don't want to be any of the things that they tell me I should be, uh, it was a little more challenging. So what I can tell you is this, there's a couple of factors going on here, right? So I'm 47, my parents are 73, and that generation, a lot of people in that generation, really, and before them, truly believed that children were theirs, and that children, the, the function of children were to, you know, you, you had to reflect proudly upon your parents because you were an extension of them and a reflection of them. And I do not believe that. My husband does not believe that. I believe my children came through me. I do not believe they are mine. And it's, that's a very different, uh, I, I don't have ownership of them in other words. And what they are here to do and be, it has nothing to do with me. Uh, so what they go and choose to do as a profession or how they express themselves in the world, that's for them. And my job is to guide and support and, you know, provide as much opportunity, obviously, as possible. But, you know, 
The only thing that I really think is a reflection of me is whether or not they use manners in public at, at this point, you know? So, um, and I parent that way very specifically because I found it to be really damaging that I was told that what I did and who I decided to be either brought them pride or caused them harm. And I just think that is toxic. I think it's really, really toxic. Now, I'm not saying if your child grows up to be a, you know, a heroin addict that you're going to be jumping up and down excited. But I also don't think that that means that you, beat, you have to beat yourself up as a parent. We all, you know, choose our paths. But getting back to the boundaries, when you believe that your child and what your child decides and does every day is a reflection of you, then you're going to feel the need to control it. And when you are a person like me who rebels against absolutely everything you're told to do, even when it's good for you, that's not going to work well. So what happens is people typically go one of two ways. They go the way I went or they go the way my sisters went. So you either become a person that says F you and F that and I'm not doing anything you tell me to do or you become a people pleaser and you really sabotage and repress and suppress things about yourself in order to make the other person happy because you believe your worth is tied up in your ability to make them happy. And I rebelled against that hardcore so I think really for us sort of adults now, the key is self-awareness. The key is being aware of and, and doing the work to go really deep to figure out not your purpose because that gets so heady, but what your desires are because I think they're really connected. And if you pay attention to your desires and your deep yearnings, then you cannot betray yourself. You really can't betray yourself. They're, they're inextricably linked, purpose and, and desires and yearnings. And if a parent decides that they're going to be upset about that, that's their right. They have the absolute right to feel whatever they feel about it. But what you must divorce yourself from is the responsibility to do anything about that other than maybe if it's safe for you to do so, attempt to have a conscious conversation about it. Some parents are not capable of that, and that's okay. My parents were not, and I had to realize that. So I had a lot of conscious conversations with other adults who came in and sort of nurtured me throughout life. Uh, it's a hard thing to do, but one thing I know about boundaries, they absolutely saved me, and they continue to save me, and they allow me the freedom to be who I am and make choices that reflect the truth of who I am and why I'm here. And without them, my life, my business, my parenting, my everything is about somebody else and not about me. And I'm not okay with that. So my boundaries are clear, they're consistent, they're direct, and they're not negotiable. And that is, I've been called a bitch for it. I've been called mean. I've been called rigid. I've been called difficult. I've been called 8 billion words. And those words are meant to break down my boundaries. And for me, because again, I'm kind of rebellious in nature. <laughs> when somebody tries to mess with my boundaries, it just makes me strengthen them because it's evidence to me that, oh, you just want me to break down the boundaries so you get what you want. No, you're not, that's not going to happen. You got to get what you want somewhere else. That's not going to work. Because I am sick, and I'm sick to death of watching women sacrifice themselves and their dreams and their talents and their gifts because they think their worth is tied up in making somebody else feel better about themselves. It's just bullshit. So I refuse to be that and I refuse to model that. For my kids, I don't have daughters, but I have sons, and I, I hope they choose really strong partners. Um, and just as a woman who tries to be visible, I refuse to be somebody that models anything other than, no, it's healthy to do that. And it's not only healthy, it's necessary. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah. When you're like, I'm so tired of seeing women who tie up their worth in making someone else happy or tie up their worth in like, not even just like someone else's happiness, but approval, you know, approval, validation, yeah. love, like, oh, well, yes. I'll be worth it if this person says so, or if this person says so, or if that person says so. And um, 
it's just so real. It's so real. And look, I know men who go through this too, for sure. But I yeah. would say culturally, it is it is tends to be more of a female <clears throat> quality. Right. Well, and I think that's because the if you live in a patriarchal society, the message will always be to women that your worth is in uh, nurturing and making other people happy, primarily men. And that serves, you know, keeping the patriarchy in sort of power and control. And uh, it's, I love to be nurturing. I love to take care of other people, but my worth isn't tied up in it. And I think the biggest problem here, Jamie, and I say this to my clients all the time, is that we bought some big line of BS that worth is earned. And we have forgotten that worth is a birthright. And the minute you remember that, everything changes. You do not have to earn your worth. And when you screw up, your worth is not diminished. You know, you have to forgive yourself and be compassionate and move on and be accountable and responsible. But, you know, when you understand that you're worthy just because you're here, then everything turns 180 degrees and you start making decisions from very, very different places, very different places, much more empowered places. And that's, I mean, gosh, if, if anybody's listening, they take anything away from this conversation, that's what I would hope it would be. Um, and I see this just kind of to loop it in with money. I see this happen all the time that women get all jacked up on charging what they're worth. Yeah. You can't charge for your worth. You charge for value. There's a huge difference. And this is when I teach this to people, women, they don't, they just kind of freak out for a minute. They're like, Oh my gosh, if you're messed up about the truth of your worth, you will never make money in alignment with the value you bring period. When you get your worth all straightened out and squared away and you're back to the truth of it, then you can take all of your focus and put it on imp constantly improving the value you bring to clients and customers and, and your relationships. In terms of charging, that's what we charge for. So let go of the, I'm, I, I don't charge what I'm worth because those things, those two things don't even go together. They're not in, even at the same party dancing and start like getting really clear about your value, which by the way, is going to be very hard to do if you are not clear that you have worth. So you can't work on one without working on the other. What do you think are the, like what behaviors would you say are, indicative of worthiness issues <laughs> so many oh my gosh let me get the scroll out hold on there's uh, there's so many the ones i see quite often working with entrepreneurs are absolutely undercharging across the board and then trying to argue on behalf of the limitation of undercharging. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. People try to convince me all the time why they don't deserve to make awesome money. And it's almost laughable to me at this point because there's really nothing you're going to say to me that's going to make me go, oh, yeah, you're right. You kind of suck. You really should lower your prices. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. What I may say is, oh, okay, if you want to raise your prices, you may need to tweak over here and, and add a little more value. Um, and so what? You go do that. That's just a strategic move. But that's, that's a big one that I see. The second big one I see and again, it is primarily with women. It's not that it doesn't happen to men, but it's primarily with women, is holding back on being visible. I can't be more visible because of how I look. I can't be more visible because of how I speak, because I don't know enough, because I'm not expert enough. I mean, again, it's all the enoughs. I am not fill in the blank enough yet. And I see a lot of really intelligent women say, I just, I don't know enough about this yet. I have to go learn more. I'm like, you know, that's really not it. Mm, no. I see young women, you know, tell me that they really have lots of hangups about their physical appearance um, on camera or on stage or whatever because of the pressure that's, you know, on 20 and 30 year olds, let me tell you, when you get to 40, there's a whole new level of freedom, which is the most beautiful thing. But then I talk with women in their 40s and 50s and 60s who are afraid because they're like, I have wrinkles. I'm, you know, overweight. I have, I'm graying. I'm this. I'm like, yeah, 
you're supposed to be going through those things. That's normal. And look, I'm certainly not saying this as if I escaped any of those challenges myself. I, I am constantly butting up against that. But, you know, when it, it, the one thing it does not do is keep me from showing up. I will have some inner turmoil about it that I have to work through, but I don't allow it to stop me from being on a stage or, you know, a video or on a podcast or, you know, anything else. Those are, I would say, the two biggies I see all the time. And by the way, visibility can include like what some of my more creative clients have said. It's not me, it's my work. I don't want to put that painting out there. I just, I have to share a story with you because this, I'm still, my head is still spinning around. It hasn't quite slowed down yet. I have a client who I've been working with for, I don't know, four months maybe or so in a group container. And I know that she creates unique commissioned pieces of art. And I've heard all about her art. I've seen her piece. Of, I mean, she is she has more talent in her pinky than I have in my whole body. It's unbelievable. And she comes to the group call the other day and she says, oh, you know, my current client wants to commission, I don't know, three more pieces or something, whatever. And she's going to pay in full. And, and Kelly, you told me to raise my prices, but I don't know. And I, I blah, blah, blah. I said, what's your hang up? You know, are you thinking she can't afford it? She's like, well, I'm not really sure. She, she's the CEO of Tiffany's. <laughs> I, almost fell, um, I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I literally, I didn't know whether to laugh or strangle her. I didn't know what to do, right? And the whole group had the same reaction. We all like fell back in our chairs and we're all like, are you kidding me? But this is the perfect example of how when you are messing up worth and value and then including money in the mix, it blinds your ability to be objective and see what's truly in front of you. And so for her, it wasn't about how she physically was showing up. It was about her, her pieces of art her, and, her, and her craft. And this couldn't possibly be good enough. When this CEO of Tiffany's is like, yeah, I have one and now I want three more. And, you know, I want you to meet this person over here who's some other CEO of some other ginormous company. You know, it really uh, blinds you. It blinds you to the truth. And that is the tragedy of it. I'll say also, you know, something that comes up for a lot of creatives. I mean, I think that this is one of the, and I, you know, I talk about this a bit is it's really hard for us to separate our work from ourselves because it comes from us. And I think that it's the same relationship with like your children, not being a part of you. I actually yes. think that for creatives, like we do have that relationship with our work where it's so connected to us and it's so personal and it came from us. And like, it's the same way that you can recognize a writer's voice or a painter's style because they are in their, in their work. It's like their yes. DNA is in it. Yes. So creating that separation and creating that boundary where, you know, they have to kind of identify the difference between work and value, worth yes. and value. And some of that really is being able to understand the energetic boundary between like your personhood and your work. You know, that like, it's not I necessarily the same it's not the same period. And I understand that there's overlap. It's not quite as black and white as it is in some other uh, industries, right? But it's, that's all the more reason why if you are, if you self-identify as a creative, that limits and boundaries have to be in place because you're more vulnerable to the fallout if you don't not only set them, but hold them. Here's the other thing. It's one thing to come up with healthy boundaries and set them and express them, which people pleasers find immensely uncomfortable to do. It's another thing altogether to be able to hold your ground when somebody tests your boundaries. Because believe me, the minute you set them, somebody's going to test them because they're not going to like that you finally set a boundary. So you've got to be able to hold them to it. And when you start to do this consistently, the first few times it's going to be painful. You're going to feel terrible and probably feel guilt and or shame. And then you're going to start to see the benefits of it because non-ideal people will be repelled by your healthy boundaries 
and healthy people who have the kind of distance that they are looking at your body of work or a piece of work and appreciating it for what it is and you for who you are separately, that allows for a really healthy working relationship and allows you to price accordingly. Um, And so for creatives, I think it's literally a non-negotiable skill that you must, must develop if you're in it for the long haul. You know, not just the short-term gain, but if you are in it to be creative for, for good and you are in this to win it for the long haul, then you've got to put this in place to protect yourself. But also, the same client said to me that since she started doing this, the quality and the, um, what word did she use? Not theme, but like nature of her work has changed significantly. And she's sort of birthing things that she never has before um, in a more expansive way because her energy is not being drained by having poor boundaries. So I thought that was pretty cool feedback as well. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. You know, you're just changing the world. No big deal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so cute. Yeah, I know. Laugh it up. LOL. Let's I love you. laugh about it. It's fine. Girl, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> laughing. I'm laughing because I, I know it to be true, but also on some level, it sounds ridiculous. And the, the truth is also that I think every time we truly own what we were given to share, um, and you can put that anyway, like stand in your power, share your gifts, whatever it is. I think it's impossible for you not to be changing the world in some way, honestly, whether it's through art or writing or uh, hands-on healing or coaching or consulting, it doesn't matter. If that is you authentically and fully sharing the unique, unique gift you were given, then it's impossible for you not to create a ripple effect from that. So, Yeah, I appreciate that. I do think I'm changing the world. And I think everybody has the potential to do it if we would all just wake up and say, oh, this is actually what I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. How, what would you say, what would be like the one step you would have someone take in order to gain what you believe would be the necessary level of self-awareness to really just start moving in the direction of healing their worthiness wounds and stepping into their enoughness and becoming more kind of keenly aware of the things that may be holding them back in their mind? A couple of things. So the first thing is just a a point of learning, which is I want, I really wish I could teach this to all the billions of people on the planet. When you realize how important it is to use your mind uh, as the tool that it, that it truly is, then I I mean, I just can't impress this upon people enough. Your mind is immensely powerful. It is not you. It is a part of you and it is, has been given to you as a tool to use to express yourself and to be here. Most people are not even remotely tapped into how powerful it is. And most people don't understand how powerful the subconscious mind is. That's where all these limiting beliefs reside. So people think, oh, I'm just going to do all this conscious personal development work and that's going to change everything. And it, and it just doesn't. It doesn't. It'll move the needle. Don't get me wrong. It's not a waste of your time. But you can only do so much conscious stuff until you're going to bump up against a wall and say, I know better. I've done all this work. Why am I not doing better or differently? And the answer is always because either your mind or your brain is not on board. And quite often it's the combination of both. So point of learning, you know, here is just please start to understand or go learn a little bit about the subconscious mind and how it works um, and that you really have to get it on board and you can't ignore it. And I understand that most people don't really understand what it is or how it works, but it's immensely powerful. So that's just number one is educate yourself on that. The second thing is reverse engineer where you're suffering and struggling. So identify right now where your biggest pain is. 
Is it in constantly struggling to produce work that you feel good about? Is it, no, I produce work and I produce a lot of it, but I, I'm practically giving it away and I, I feel terrible about that because I can't, you know, I have this mindset of the starving artist, which holy cow, can we put that one to bed already? Sweet Jesus, over it, over it. Um, so, you know, find your pain point and reverse engineer. And by that, what I mean is go from the pain and walk yourself backwards to the thoughts behind the pain and then to the beliefs behind the thoughts. And when you can uncover, and it's usually somewhere between three and five, everybody's got about three to five root core beliefs that are causing every pain in their life. If you can just reverse engineer, walk yourself backwards to those three to five beliefs, you are going to see exactly what needs to be rewired and reprogrammed in order to have what you desire. And the third thing is this, and I think too many people skip this. And actually, if I'm being honest, this is the first thing. If you don't take the time and the space to painfully, honestly, acknowledge your desires and your deep yearnings, you will never create a business or a life that fulfills you. You will never, ever tap into that real abundance that's waiting for you because you will create a life and a business that is not fully about you. And so, you know, most women and probably most men are not asked throughout life, what are your deepest desires? What are we asked when we're kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody says, what are your deep, deep desires? You know, what, what, is your, what are your insides telling you you are just dying for, yearning for? Let's look at that. Let's be honest about it. Jamie and I were laughing a little bit before uh, she hit record about an opportunity that has come my way. And this person I was talking to about this opportunity mentioned to me, you know, you really need a TV show. And never before had I ever acknowledged out loud, yeah, that's something I would actually want. I would actually really like that. And so it was so powerful for me to go, yeah, I've thought that before, but I never really acknowledged it in a, in a painfully honest, truthful way because immediate my ego, immediately my ego was like, that's dumb. You're not, you, why would you do that? There's no way for you to do that. And where would you go? And you're not Oprah and blah, 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 right? So too easily we dismiss it. So you've got to create the time and space to get very clear about deep desires. And then you can do the other stuff with more ease. What do you think is the, what would you say is the difference between like a deep desire versus like an external dream? You know, so I, I feel like I, I just want us to be really clear about what that is so we can explain the difference where someone might have like a goal or a dream or like since I was a kid, I fantasized or wanted X, Y, Z for my life. Yes. Because those things can change and evolve, right? Oh, um, sure. So it's like, how would you explain to someone the difference between acknowledging your dreams versus acknowledging like a deep, deep desire? Yeah, it's very easy. So when somebody says, here's my goal, here's my dream, ask them why. Ask them why. That will get you closer to what it is you really want. So when somebody says to me something like, I, and this is a big one I get all the time, I want to make a million dollars. I'm like, awesome, let's talk about that. If tomorrow you won the lottery and a million dollars was just appeared in your bank account, you got the payout, it's in your bank, now what? And they, a lot of the times will be very, very stumped um, because what they think they want isn't what they're actually yearning for. And when we get down to it, they'll be able to break it down and go, okay, here's what I actually want. I want to be worry-free. I want to be financially secure enough to have options and, and choices in front of me. That makes me feel alive. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel excited. It makes me feel full of uh, possibility and hope. That's experientially what they want to feel freedom, security, and safety. And, and people say different things that allow me to have fun and blah, 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 all those things. So it's not actually about the money. And then we talk about how you can start accessing more and more of those states right now while you're working towards that money, right? The other thing is sometimes the external dream is just a um, sort of like a time-bound representation of what you are yearning for. Sometimes it's not. 
you know, there, we all know people who were five years old who said, I want to be on Broadway. And like, that's what they ended up doing kind of thing. You know what I mean? Which is awesome. It's awesome. I think, you know, however, you can be in a time and space where you quote unquote want something that doesn't mean that's your deep desire. So I encourage people to go beneath the surface. I quite often have this fantasy (laughs) You've heard me say this one before. I've said it many times. I'm like, oh God, what's going to happen? <laughs> it, it, no, no, no. It's, it's not. No, I'm, it's not one of those fantasies. <laughs> that's, for, that's for a different podcast episode. But the, I have this fantasy a lot of, of buying a ticket to Bali and packing one suitcase and going and being a bartender. And, wh- and it comes back all the time. I fantasize about it all the time. And the beach is like my soul is home. But really what that when it pops up for me, what the deep yearning is for calm, uh, not feeling um, uh, overcommitted in any way, not feeling burdened in any way. Well, I can just show up, talk to people, mix drinks, get a tan and get on with life, you know, which by the way, look at this skin. You can't, the listeners can't see it. The skin is not getting it's tanned, by the way. It'd, all, it'd be it's, all fake. It's really fake, beautiful but, skin though. Uh, it'd be all fake, fake, but I, I, I would do it. It'd be all right. <laughs> but the truth is if I go deep, that's really what it's about. That I yearn in stressful times for things to be calm and quiet and how I feel when I'm at the beach, unencumbered, you know? And so I think it's really about taking things deeper. Second thing is you've got to be discerning, which is a leadership skill that I don't see enough people developing. And it's really a little bit scary. So I'm constantly encouraging people to lean into discernment and know whether something's coming from your inner being, your spirit, your soul, whatever you want to call it, or something's coming from your ego, or something is coming from... Um, like an old habit or pattern. And you've got to be discerning. Do I really want to live in the in Bali? No, I'd like to go for a couple of weeks and hang out. But after that, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so bored. I got to go start a business. That's exactly what would happen if I'm being really honest, right? If, if a yearning and a desire won't go away, pay attention to it. If it keeps coming up and keeps coming up, do not keep squashing it down and understand that it may appear in your mind's eye in a very specific sort of concrete way. That doesn't mean that's the way you have to go manifest it in your life. That might just be sort of your mind's way of expressing, you know, a yearning for something, but there's probably a hundred different ways you could get that feeling or that experience out in the world. Go play with it. Don't ignore it. Go play with it. One of the best ways to figure out something is when somebody says, or you're talking to yourself and you say, I really want X, fill in the blank because it'll make me feel what? That's what we're all trying to get at because People are driven. We make decisions based on what we consciously or unconsciously believe the outcome of the decision will make us feel. That's what our choices as human beings are are made on. And we think we're making them from logic and intellect and wisdom and all this. No, that's not. We include those things. But we are wired to decide based on what we believe something will make us feel. And you see this all the time. People get in the loop of chasing things. Oh, I have the Porsche, but now I want the Lamborghini because the Porsche doesn't feel as good as I thought it was going to make me feel. Or <clears throat> I wanted a million and gosh, that wasn't that exciting. So I'm sure I'll feel better at 5 million or, you know, I'm married 12 times because first 11 weren't that great or whatever you get, you get the point. Um, when really, if you boil it down, you just get a really honest with yourself about what you desire to feel. You start to make extremely powerful decisions about that. That's beautiful. I wish we could talk all day. Yes. <laughs> can we just keep going? This epic can this episode just be like a day long thing? Cause that we would need be great. a part B. We need a part B. We're going to have to have a part B like that's for sure. Um, before we wrap up, I do have to ask you the $5 million question. Ooh. Yes. Which is, if Lay it on me. Given $5 million tax-free in a bank account from like a glorious angel investor, benefactor, wonderful human, 
no strings attached, what would you do with the money? Okay. I would do two things. The first thing I would do is, uh, hire a, um, a financial advisor who is really well-versed in managing uh, that volume of money. And I would make sure that all of our personal sort of needs and wants were well taken care of with investments and that we could just sort of live off of the um, interest and sort of dividends of those investments personally. And then I would take, which would be the majority of the rest of that money. And I would go back to that angel investor and I would say, how can you help me open up a school like Oprah has in, in Africa here in the United States for uh, girls who, around leadership and empowerment and, um, and across industries, not just entrepreneurial leadership, but in STEM, in, you know, literally across all industries uh, and figure out a way to open up a school like that. That's what I would do. That's beautiful. And then I'd run it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then that would be my life. And that so. would be it. Then me and Brene Brown and Oprah and Michelle Obama. And, you, you know, I'd have a really amazing. You'd have the best parties. I would have the best. I know that's oh your board God, of directors, but of course I'm thinking about parties. Oh, yes. Our, can you imagine what our teachers' meetings would be like? Oh, my God, they'd be so fun. <laughs> I, would, I would come teach at your school. Oh, you would come teach at my school. Believe me. Screenwriting, mm -hmm. would, screenwriting with heart and soul would be one of the courses offered. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Um, where can people stalk you? Because they need, so everyone needs Kelly in their life. Like if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't figured it out already, you need Kelly because everyone needs Kelly. So <laughs> where can they find more Kelly? The best place to find me, two places. The best places to find me are on Facebook. So I have a, a business page under my name and also with the words limitless entrepreneur. And I have a free Facebook group called The Limitless Entrepreneur. So you can find me over there. And you can find me on my website, which is very simply kellyruda.com. There are freebies on there. There's information on there. There's all the ways to work with me on there. Um, there's, you know, if you would be interested in having me come and speak at your event or on your podcast or whatever, there's an application. There's, there's everything you would need over on my website. So those are the two best places. So definitely reach out and connect. Thank you so much, Kelly. I'll put all those details in the show notes so that you guys don't miss a beat. And um, I can't wait for part two is all I have to say. <laughs> I can't wait too. Next time I'm bringing a glass of wine. This That's right. We're so just going to do a happy fun. hour. <laughs> this is so fun. Thank you, my love. This is the best part of my day today. I appreciate it. This episode is sponsored by Copy That, my signature course for writing websites that speak volumes and sell. Something that every creative making money for sure needs. To learn more about my approach to writing that sells, you can visit thecopythatcourse.com slash free training.